Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astell, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What up, Todd? How's it going? It's going okay, but did you get outside at all this weekend or today? I, I went uh, went riding the our dirt bike motorcycle riding a little bit, and the air is just so thick and dirty. Well, I know? just want to give a shout out to Governor Newsom. He wanted to share some of uh, his California smoke with us here in Utah. Touche. It was very thoughtful of him. <laughs> I love it. It actually reminds me of a trip I took as a Senate staffer to Beijing. This is a a trip, kind of a diplomatic cultural trip hosted by the Chinese government. We spent two weeks traveling around the country as a bipartisan trip, visiting with uh, government officials and American businesses in country. Anyway, as the plane landed down in Beijing, I just started coughing on and off. Like I almost like I had some dust in my throat or something. And this went on for a bit and I didn't really think anything of it. And but when we walked out of the airport, I saw the sky was just this smoky brown, <laughs> something that I hadn't really ever seen. I guess I'd seen it in L.A. when I was a kid, but very glad we don't have to live with that kind of smog every day, even though I had a yeah. great time on the trip. I saw some people posting on Friday that, um, you know, that they had screenshotted something from an air quality website and said that Salt Lake has the worst air quality of any city in the world on Friday. And I posted and I said, any city listed, um, which doesn't include the cities on fire in California that are blowing their smoke <laughs> our way. So the State Board of Education approved new rules for what educators can and can't say about racism in the classroom. Under the rules, teachers explicitly cannot say that one race is, quote, inherently superior or inferior, or that people's moral character is influenced by their race. They also cannot instruct that students bear responsibility for the past actions of any individuals of their race, such as blaming white people today for slavery. Todd, after all the histrionics, can anyone really disagree that teachers should not teach that one race is inherently superior to another? Well, no, uh, and of course no one can disagree on that. And this is this mirrors the language that the legislature adopted last May when, you know, Democrats, you know, said, well, we we're idiots because we don't even know what critical race theory is. And if we did know what it is, we would know it doesn't exist. But why, why would anyone want uh, fifth graders being told that they were responsible for something that, you know, happened when their great, great grandparents were alive or didn't happen? Um, And why would we want any teacher telling someone that they're inherently inferior or superior because of the color of their skin? So these are kind of no brainers. And what bothers me the most, Corey, is people um, um, and, and the media, the national media especially, they're conflating the issue now and they're saying, well, we th- why do Republicans not want people to be taught about um, slavery and about the civil rights movement? Nobody is suggesting you can't teach about slavery and the civil rights re- movement. A critical race theory is not tr- it's not saying that we should teach about, you know, some of uh, some of the negative things that have happened in our country that, you know, I grew up, I'm 54 years old, so I graduated high school in 1985. I learned about slavery in school. That's not the issue. What, what What's the issue is, is if, if we, you know, if we're teaching that, that white people today are responsible or that we need to tear down every institution today in our country, in our nation, in our society, because there aren't equal outcomes that not everybody earns the same as as their neighbor and therefore be because racism inherently was if you believe because of the skin color your skin color that you're better than than somebody else 
because of their skin color. That that's the historical definition of racism. But today we're being told by, by some people that if you support fill in the blank, any institution in our, in our country, if you, if you support um, capitalism, that you are racist because some in capitalism, not everyone earns the same amount of income or not everyone is equally as wealthy, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. For sure. Let's, uh, let's level set on what this is because I think, as you said, people just use whatever different definitions kind of favor their argument. I've actually spent a lot of time on reading this stuff just out of personal interest over the years, long before this became a thing. The, the critical project is aimed at tearing down institutions, as you said. For critical theorists, our entire world is socially constructed. The concept of race is a social construct, biological sex, that is the difference between men and women is a social construct. Even science, logic, and reason are social constructs. And what's a social construct? Well, it means that these are merely stories we tell ourselves and there's nothing true about them and, and nothing inherently true. There really is no such thing as a capital T truth in critical theorists. Instead, what we have are narratives about the world devised by those in power to maintain their power and privilege. So like working hard, arriving on time, going to class, turning in your homework. These are constructs created by those in power because it serves to advantage them and entrench their power. Or at least that's what, what uh, we're told. And ultimately, power is the only thing that is real. So critical theorists want more than anything to re reverse and invert the power balance of power flipping the script, so to speak, so that the disadvantaged become the advantaged. And a good example here, Nicole Hannah-Jones, for anyone who followed, she's the author of the 1619 Project from the New York Times. She openly admitted that the 1619 Project, quote, never pretended to be history. <laughs> Instead, she intended to critically deconstruct and, quote, reframe the narrative about the American founding. And that's regardless of whether the evidence says otherwise. So, I mean, now I... I think a lot of people just find that sort of approach to teaching children subversive and unwelcome in our K through 12 public schools. And as you said, progressives nationally and here in Utah argue that all they want to do is to stop hiding our history, but that's really just a convenient sleight of hand. I mean, I think, as you said, in 2021, you'd be hard pressed to find more than a few outliers who'd be opposed to teaching that slavery was completely wrong or that it played a harmful role in the founding that civil war was uh, fought in large part due to slavery, that Jim Crow was an evil substitute for slavery. And, and Martin Luther King served a righteous cause by fighting for civil rights. As you, I mean, I frankly learned all this in Utah public schools in the 1980s, 1990s. And if we want to expand the curriculum, I, I didn't know anything about Juneteenth before last year, for example. Well, I think you'd have a lot of people say, yeah, that makes sense. Let's be inclusive. You know, let's learn our history. Let's hear other perspectives. But, you know, trying to impose original guilt on good people just because of what they look like. I don't believe that's the society we want. Critical race theory per se may not be taught in Utah's public schools, but the controversial concepts like white privilege and systemic racism and intersectionality that find fault where it doesn't lie, these are all quickly becoming mainstreamed in a way that I think you know people understandably find troubling. So I, I say hold these discussions in college. I would totally take that course, but it's not appropriate for our children. Yeah, and let me just say, I think one mistake that conservatives make is they they dismiss everything in the 1619 Project because there were some mistakes and there were some overstatements. For instance, the 1619 Project um, basically teaches that the reason, the primary reason for the American Revolution was to protect slavery, and and that's why the 13 colonies went to war. 
And that's not true. I, it, it's, it would also not, you know, not be true to say that slavery had nothing to do with it, but it was certainly not the central issue of the American Revolution. And so um, the author, you know, uh, she, she wanted to stretch some theses to, to make her point. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, we can't learn anything from the 1619 Project. And um, I'm afraid that conservatives dismiss the whole thing just because um, th- there were a couple, I think, theses that were not, th- that were overstated. I'm not even going to say they're not true. I'm going to say they're overstated. Definitely agree with that. We've been talking COVID for the past couple of weeks, uh, but it's starting to loom large now that uh, we're just a few weeks from school starting. In fact, in some districts, probably school starting uh, this week with um, year-round education. During the special session last May, uh, the Utah legislature passed uh, a bill that uh, does not allow school districts uh, to implement mask mandates. It does, uh, actually a bill that we passed last February does, however, allow the local county health departments and the state health departments to, ma- uh, to, to, to mandate masks, but it also allows the elected officials, the county commissioners, to overrule those mandates. So, Corey, do you want a mask mandate in your children's schools? No, and and I don't think you'll see a mask mandate in our uh, Alpine school district. Every every Utah county commissioner has already come out in opposition, and, and rightly so. I th- I think this should be a decision for parents. The risk of COVID death or serious illness just remains so extremely low in children. Here's a stat for you: a child's likelihood of dying in a car crash is one in a hundred and seven. Likelihood of dying from COVID is closer to one in one hundred thousand. So, I mean, the Delta variant is much more contagious, and so we should be concerned. It spreads much more quickly, but the evidence from across the world really doesn't give us reason to believe that it causes more serious illness. There, there has been a variant, the, the beta variant, that did seem to cause more serious illness, but thankfully it withered quickly. That said, the Delta variant clearly presents a serious risk to unvaccinated adults. And, you know, just like our show last week, I strongly encourage all adults and children 12 and older to go get vaccinated right away because mask or no mask, you're probably going to get it. You're probably going to contract this Delta variant. It's just, uh, it's as contagious as the chicken pox. And that's where we need to put our focus on getting everyone vaccinated. Not, yeah. not really on punishing children with masks and, and more remote school. Let me give a couple more statistics just to put this in perspective. So a child, a kindergartner, you know, a grade school child is 10 t- more than 10 times more likely to die of cancer than they are of COVID based on all the data we have for the first year of the coronavirus. Um, They're 10.5 times more likely, I'm talking about grade school children, to die of suicide than they are of COVID. They're over um, almost 350% more likely to die of homicide and three times more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than COVID. They're more than twice as likely to die from drowning than they are from COVID. And they're about equally likely to die from suffocation as they are from COVID. And so um, no one is saying that COVID bears uh, or is not a risk at all to children. Um, But I like to compare it to uh, school bus accidents. Every year in the United States, every year, multiple children die in school bus accidents. And yet we still have schools. Why? Why do we have, why don't we just cancel school 
and and we can save children's lives. And and the reason is obvious. Well, first of all, school bus accidents, you know, they're they're hard to predict. Um, they happen fairly infrequently. Even when they do happen, you know, death is you know not uh, always uh, a predeterminant. Um, but we all recognize that that the benefit of, uh, of 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 education in the long run outweighs you know some some risks. And if our goal was to never let a child get sick ever ever ever, we we would never have started public schools because they're just little petri just dishes of germs. You know, especially yeah. <laughs> for those kindergartners and first and second graders. And so the reality is is we've had one child uh, tragically one child. Uh, die of COVID, uh, one minor in this entire state. Um, I don't know all the details, but the reality is, is that children have a very low risk of of dying from COVID. They have a very low risk of even being COVID long haulers. Um, most kids that contract the disease, they they get the sniffles or a sore throat, sore throat or cold like symptoms for a day or two or three, and and they're fine. You know, I know some people are all freaked out. It's just like I compare this to Shark Week. You know, every <laughs> summer we have Shark Week and people get freaked out and, the, and everybody's talking about sharks. And you still have a much better chance of getting struck by lightning than you do of getting eaten by a shark. And yet, you know, we, we don't have lightning week. And so whenever the media, <laughs> whenever the media shines a spotlight on people, it's easy to get people completely, you know, paranoid about things. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't wash our hands. And, and I've, I've been telling parents in my district that want everyone else's kids to wear a mask. I'm like, you can, you, you've got a couple of choices. You can homeschool your child. You can find them an online option. And a lot of the districts, even Salt Lake City School District is providing an online option for parents. Or guess what, Corey? You can send your kid to school with their own N95 mask. And then it doesn't matter what the other kids are doing. Right. And now Governor Cox has has come out and said that N95 masks will be available in schools for any child that that wants to wear them or any parent that wants their child to to, to wear them. And, and I know all the schools, even though they can't mandate masks, they will be strongly recommending them. And that's fine. All right. After intense pressure from his progressive left base, President Biden reinstated a federal eviction moratorium. This comes after the Supreme Court said plainly that the executive branch did not have the authority Biden agreed publicly that he didn't have the authority, but he searched and found a left-wing lawyer, one who's out there who said maybe he could get away with it. So Biden went ahead. Todd, we don't cheer for people getting evicted from their homes. That is always tragic. But mom-pop landlords can't house people for free forever. Yeah, it's just um, it's just crazy that, um, you know, with all of the money that's been mailed out uh, with the stimulus checks um, that Congress or the president doesn't think that anyone should have to pay their rent and that landlords, you know, most landlords that I know, they've taken out mortgages. And so they're they're hedging that they can collect enough rent, you know, to turn around and, and pay the mortgage payment they have. I'm, I'm sure there's some landlords out there that, you know, that, that they're debt free. But but most, you know, most people, they're playing that they're playing that game where they're, you know, they're renting out and then they're taking the rent and they're paying their mortgage and paying their interest. And so what, um, what president Biden is now saying is, yeah, you may have not collected rent for a year and a half. Um, but now I'm not going to let you collect rent, you know, for, for the next couple of months. And, you know, president Trump started this. And I think that when we were asking everyone to stay home, you know, two weeks to, to flatten the curve, it made sense that we didn't want to be evicting people, but I think we're well beyond that now. And I think a great argument could be made that President Trump, you know, started us down this road and that that was a mistake. But 
in any event, um, you know, the economy in Utah, we're less than 3% unemployment. Restaurants are closing um, in my area, in my community, because they can't find enough teenagers to work for, yeah. for even, you know, sometimes double minimum wage. So, you know, I, I think, um, and it's not like these people are going to pony up, you know, uh, 18 months worth of rent when, when the moratorium's over. So what we're doing is this is basically the government saying, you know, if the landlord was uh, dumb enough to sign a lease with somebody that now they have to provide them free housing uh, because what, because of COVID. And so it's an unsustainable model and it's not going to end well. For sure. And I agree with you. I mean, I don't want to say that an eviction moratorium was the wrong decision in 2020. I mean, it was the government that forced businesses to shut down. And so people had no income. Um, so maybe, and, and I definitely think that the rental assistance made sense so that the burden didn't completely fall on, on uh, property owners. But like you said, America's back in business, jobs are available. The burden for the pandemic can't continue to fall so disproportionately on, on just this group of people. And, and how can they stay in business? Why would they even want to? I mean, ultimately, it'll just exacerbate our housing shortage, I think. So because the moratorium will have to end at some point, should end it now. Well, Corey, Silicon Slopes made a big move to throw their uh, more of their weight around. This week, they launched the Slopes PAC, which is a political action committee created to represent the interests of Silicon Slopes. And it's aimed at influencing state le- the state legislature. Uh, Corey, what, what do you think is going to come from this new Silicon Slopes pack? Well, it's really interesting because it does seem that the Utah's tech sector has been reluctant up to this point to in, engage in practical politics and, and policymaking. They, they did uh, kind of dip their toe in the water when it came to COVID, but, but by and large, they've mostly stayed out. And for this this time around, they say they're gonna. The focus is gonna be on economic growth and innovation. They have well, they have three main buckets: economic growth and innovation, and then uh, current and future workforce, and then social and economic mobility. And I get the sense that, I mean, this is just from from people talking, but I do get the sense that maybe some of their focus will be a little bit more on the latter, on the on the social mobility, a little bit more on maybe the, some of the social issues that we talked about today. Yeah, but uh, it'll be really interesting to see. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think that um, there's a lot of money flowing around down there, and and um, you know, I think that they'll start waving some of it around. I the the the, the beauty of the Utah legislature are, I mean, you know, the, the, it's so diverse, and there's so many different interests, special interests that are advocating to the legislature. I, I don't think there's just one group that gets you know uh, carte blanche to make policy and. Um, you know, I, I tell people there's 104 state legislators in Utah, but there's over 500 registered lobbyists. So Whoa. we're outnumbered five to one. Now, all of them aren't that active, but, um, you know, so there's a lot of people, uh, you know, bending their ear and lo- lobbyists get a bad rap and sometimes they deserve it. But a lot of times they're just advocating as an industry expert, you know, for something. It, it's hard for my colleagues and, and myself included to be experts on everything. So if you have somebody that represents a certain trade or a certain, you know, profession, and they can come in and say, Hey, you know, the language of this bill needs to be tweaked. If it passes as it is, this is what it's going to do to our profession. You know, that's very helpful to have that insight. So, um, I think that they'll make a difference. I think they'll probably, you know, get behind some bills. Um, but, um, I I don't expect that the whole legislature is going to change just because they're waving a few dollars in our direction. Yeah, that's a great point. And I appreciate your, your 
uh, kind description of, of lobbyists being a once in future lobbyist myself. <laughs> we, we like to think that what we're bringing to the table is, uh, is more helping to under, uh, explain and, and, and shed understanding. So, well, and what, you know, what, what I want our listeners to know is, you know, the, the lobbyists, you know, the, the legislators come and go, the lobbyists pretty much are always there. And we have one lobbyist, I'll name him Doug Foxley. He's, he's been lobbying the legislature since I think the early seventies. Um, wow. so, so he, he's still there. He's, and, uh, and so, you know, if a lobbyist b- burns you, you know, if they tell you something that's or untrue or they misrepresent the truth, um, legislators remember that. And so, um, the good lobbyists, they're going to come in and they're going to give you both sides of the story and they're going to try to argue why their, their, their side is the, is the better side, but they, they have a job to do. And, and I'll tell you, uh, Pat, you know, debating and passing over 500 bills in 45 days, in some respects, the lobbyists are the lubricant that allows the, the legislative engine to, to operate because you'd be shocked at how many things that they catch in bills that um, our legislative attorneys and other legislators mm-hmm. overlooked because we have 500 extra sets of eyes looking at every bill and um, and not all the lobbyists are on the same side, you know, and that, and that, that sometimes makes for better policy when we have, you know, a, a chorus of vo- voices, you know, with different interests and feeding legislators talking points. It, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think yeah. it, 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 it rounds us out um, quite well. Thanks for that. That's all the time we have. Well, thanks, Corey. We'll see you next week.